Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. you'll get 
say this changes every single trial. Sometimes this is green, white, red. It just switches all the time. So I train them up and in fact then what they have to do these go out and then we get what's called retention. We'll say five seconds then the keys come back on and typically so they, they, let's say they pack red, they get food. Next time what comes back up, red, green, white, they pack this again. And there's two ways to solve that problem. This is two different modalities. Unlike the Bob and Fred experiment. Yeah. <laughs> um, in this case, there's two ways to solve this problem. Because remember the color, red. Well, just remember, why don't we just give them three blue keys? Okay? So, location? Pardon me? I was just going to say, is it maybe location as well? Well, it could be location, yeah. So, why not give them three blue ones to see what happens? Or why not give them that one possibility, but it's even easier than that. To hell with three blues, why don't we just do this? White, red, green, and then see what they peck. If they peck there, they're responding to color. If they peck there, they're responding to space. So you could use this kind of control condition, but it's not really necessary because you can get at, are they responding to space or color really simply by just doing this. And in this case, what pigeons do is they respond to the space. The nice thing is, in experiments like this, what you do is you don't reward them. So after they've pecked a few times, they switch. And their second choice is always the color. So the first choice is to the space, spatial location, second choice is to the color. In this case here, we have something where all pigeons behave that way, but spatial locations are going to be in the wild a lot less Volatile in colors. Colors change. Spatial locations don't. That's still that place in the world. Right? It hasn't moved. It's not a TARDIS. Nobody's got the doctor who represents them all. It's horrible. Figure it on the inside. So it's not like spatial locations don't change. Or they're much, if you're remembering a spatial location, you say that line of trees is there, it's still probably going to be there tomorrow. But the color here might change. So what the pages in that case do is they respond to color first. Right? So, in fact, this experiment, so we can cross that up, because you don't have to do that. This experiment, this is, uh, who did that again? Oh, that was me. So the, the point of this is that 
Here we have a different modality. And when it's not the same, quite the same kind of experiment, but you still are testing stimulus control. In this case, it's a memory experiment. What's controlling? What are they remembering? But they're remembering both. But their first choice is space, their second choice is color. Okay. With the red box experiment, they pack, depending on the bird. Depending on the bird. They pack mostly one component of the stimulus. But they do pack to the other one. It's not like they don't pack at all. Right? So maybe it is controlling behavior in a tiny bit. And it'd be neat that if you did, the, I think the next experiment in this should be, or should have been, white triangle versus green dot, or green dot, and whatever. So, and then maybe blue triangle, blue triangle, or you'll see that I bet if you had a white triangle and a blue dot, they would pack the, they would pack the blue dot at all. Under minus, or maybe once in a minute compared to, and it's not very many, but it's a couple. I think there'd still be a difference. That's my guess. But you can also think of it as a simple random chance if you want. Like there's a light on, it's in the dark, and you're in well pack something. Okay. Other questions? Good question. Like I said, why do they do it? To me, that's the same stimulus modality, unlike the Beck et al. experiment here, where we have two different stimulus modalities. Okay, what are the things that you get is generalization. And you also can get discrimination. So what you do is, if it's colors, and I've talked about this, and you do all the different colors of the rainbow, and you wouldn't actually do that, you do in colors closer or further away uh, in, in uh, frequency, in nanometers, and you get a, a generalization gradient, just like you do in classical condition, just like you do in habituation. You can also train them up. So you normally... And because I don't know the wavelengths of colors, I'm going to pretend that you, we would use these colors, and you, they wouldn't. Green, blue, violet. Let's pretend we trade them up somewhere between yellow and green. Okay. That was the S plus. So we just trade it that way, and then what we would get if we tested all these colors is we would get. And this is this is number of packs. We get this beautiful gradient like that. Okay? Just like you do, as I said, and we talked about this with habituation, just like you do with classical condition. So that's called the generalization gradient, and it probably shouldn't surprise us. Again, you would do this in extinction. Right? So when you do all these tests, all the other colors, you don't reinforce them for it. You could also do discrimination where you train them up with whatever that is between yellow and green and that some color like blue, and you train that up, let's say, as an S minus. And in that respect, what you get, uh, I'll explain it in a little bit, actually, because it's a little more complicated, but if you just test an S plus and S minus, you get no responding to the S minus and a lot of responding to the S plus. So we're sort of studying generalization discrimination. That's what stimulus control in a lot of respects is about. 
So there's a couple of ways you can get the data in these kind of experiments. Um, as I said, you can do probe trials. Now probe trials, you've trained them up on this, whatever, between yellow and green. And then now and then, you give them, I don't know, a blue. Those are going to get some data, an orange, a red, a violet, or indigo. And then you go back to whatever that red, yellow, green color is. Boomerine, let's call it that. That wouldn't be after marine, would it? That didn't matter. I like blue. Anyway. You can also use a test phase where you say, okay, or even a, a test session where you train them up, you train them up, you train them up, and they're responding beautifully. And now what you do in this session is you just give them a whole bunch of different colors and you don't reinforce them. Okay? Then you bring them back up. So the probe trial thing is you get very small amounts of data each session. The test phase or test session approach is you get a lot of data, but only in one session. Then you have to make sure that you retrain them back to detecting at whatever the S plus was. But they're both, both kinds of tests are done in extinction because you don't want to now be reinforcing the animal for pecking at a different color. You're interested in having generalized uh, around yellow green. You're not interested in, oh, can I also now train other things? You don't want to do that. So you do it all in extinction. Do you see how this is done? Does this make sense? Yeah? Okay. Now, why does this happen? This is actually a very neat question. Think about it. Why do you get this beautiful normal distribution? That's basically what it is. If you were to model this, you get a Gaussian curve. It's the best fit for that. Why? I don't know. Why not just respond to what you're supposed to do and ignore everything else? Well, the first guess is that it's a property of the nervous system. In fact, Pavlov even saw generalization when he talked about classical mission when he first discovered it. And he figured it was a property of the nervous system. But basically what happened here was that the... And, he, and it's kind of borne out in respect by Hugo and Weasel's work, right? Remember with the line orientations and the cats, you know that stuff, right? So... If you've got a 45 degree angle, the, the cat's neuron fires more than if you have like a horizontal line, and then a little less and a little less. So maybe it actually is a property of the nervous system. Question so far, does that make sense what I'm saying? But it's an interesting question. Why does this actually happen? Okay. So it could be a property of the nervous system. Maybe it's learning. Maybe. Not that learning doesn't take place in the system, okay? But I mean, I'm saying it's not, is it something that's wired up that way, hooked up that way, we've actually learned it. So Lashley and Wake figured it was actually how the animals were trained. They figured it was how the animals were trained. So, but they really didn't have any, they said this, they didn't have a whole lot of data on this. Uh, Jenkins and Harrison, uh, again, another Canadian connection, Jenkins at um, Mac. Um, Jenkins and Harrison did a really cool experiment. They, 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 instead of using, and you're thinking, well, if pigeons, you use colors because they're really good at seeing color. They used sound. Okay? So they use a tone, and then the animal generalizes you think, when they pick at tones. No. You'll see why they use tone in a second, because you have to use pecking rate. You could train them that with any tone, let's put all three up actually. 
So they had three different uh, conditions. So if the tone's on, then you pack. And then you test the various holes in extension. So, first let's talk about this explicit training, which means that you train the animal that when the say the 440 hertz tone is on, you get food if you pack, and with a 480 or all kinds of other ones around it, you don't get food. You can actually teach them this. You can do it, what's called presence absence. You show that when the tone's on, you get food. When the tone isn't on, you don't get food. Right? So when the tone's on, you pack, you get food. When the tone's not on, you pack, you don't get any food. That's presence absence training. And finally, the sort of strangest one here is non-differential training. What you're training them then is that it doesn't matter if the tone is on or not. As long as you pack, you get food. And then what we're going to do is we're going to test their generalization to the tone. So we got non-differential training, presence, absence training, and explicit training. This is the kind of thing, like, this is really clever, and you think to yourself, how the hell would you find out if they learn it? Well, these are the, really the three possibilities here. And in fact, it turns out that if you train them up with non-differential training, you don't get a generalization training. <coughs> that makes complete sense. You okay? Yeah, I'm trying to Oh, that's not good. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> In the future, there's a tip. I can post that. Don't, guys, don't tear anything today. I would, nobody get hurt if I was going. I just say, be careful out there. Don't run too fast. <coughs> Try too hard. Wouldn't be national brand, but we would have a really safe team. It'd be a boring guy. Just shoot as soon as you get the ball, shoot. But don't jump and shoot, just throw it. The old set shot. He's using the 40s. Well, this shouldn't surprise you, right? It actually, presence, absence, you get generalization gradient. Here you don't get one at all. No crook, really. No doubt. Because you said if the lights, if the, if the tone's not on, you don't get food. Well, they actually don't show a gradient at all. Right? You have a small gradient here, a really a normal gradient that looks like this here, and none at all here. So it looks like it may be a learning phenomenon. Hmm. Okay. Peterson, this you can see this was also uh, Jenkins and Harrison's in the early 60s. So is Peterson's work. Peterson decides he's got little ducklings, little baby ducklings, little, little, little ducklings, before they become delicious duck. And they bring their fat to make potatoes cooked in duck fat, which is a great thing. You should all do it all the time. So not uncivilized. We can't just buy duck fat. Alexander, in France, in the store, you can just buy duck fat, right? Yeah, see, we should all move to France. Because <laughs> you can buy duck fat. I mean, that should tell it right there. It's like, that's it, they're more civilized than this. Seriously, if you ever have a duck, you bring fat out, you cook French fries cooking duck fat, it's just like, oh. <laughs> awesome. 
So before that, though, we have to do something with the ducks, and why not train them? Um, why not bring them up in an environment where it's all just yellow? Sure, why not? What the hell? So he's got a yellow light bulb. Yes, but you know what? All these ducks ever see is yellow. Wow, it's yellow. Oh, ducks are yellow. <laughs> Could they see each other? Can they see what? Each other? Oh, because they're yellow. <laughs> they're just running into each other. Like, I don't know. I didn't know you were there. Everywhere else is yellow. We don't Peter Cindy. Couldn't have chosen blue. But actually, it's interesting because if you only have yellow light to reflect, and he's using pure yellow light in this experiment, right? So it's right at the whatever the bloody number of nanometers is. Pure yellow light. I don't know what it is. Uh, Twelve. No, it's more than that. So all they're seeing is yellow light reflected off anything. Kind of neat. What's he going to do? He's going to test, of course. Now he's going to trade them up with different colors and see if they have no experience with different colors. Maybe they don't show generalization. Ah. So that's what he did. They did not show, they showed it with, by the way, these ducks, they did show it with, uh, with, with sound. So it's not like they don't have generalization gradients, but they didn't show it with color. So he said, look, they have no experience with color. They don't know anything about color. And if that's the case, it's obviously a learning phenomenon. This is what his um, uh, conclusions were. There is a problem with that conclusion. Um, the visual system, as probably most of you guys know, development needs environmental input. It works that way. It's one of those things. Um, and if you don't see certain colors, for example, I bet the receptors for those colors just die. Do you know about, a little bit about neural Darwinism? Uh, if you don't, if you remember that from 2606, brain behavior, those of you who don't, you'll hear about it next term in 2606, brain behavior, so you're taking it. By the way, it's 70 people registered in that class. It's insane. So some of you drop it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm like kidding. Mid-term So those of you guys know this, that neurons need stimulate, they need to fire or they die. It's a planned cell death, program cell death. It's actually a good thing, because if you've got neurons that are doing nothing, neurons are very expensive to maintain. Let them die. Peterson obviously didn't know this. So his conclusion that if you have done experience and it's all about your past experience and it's all learning, and actually this could just be literally again a property of the nervous system. You don't have the neurons anymore. Right? It could be cortical neurons, it could be even uh, receptors between the eyes of these guys. It's just dumb eyes. No, that's different. I don't know if it's an eye. I'm going to go over a limb and actually completely equivocate here. And say that it probably depends on the modality of the species being tested. So this is what when Crispin asked, why triangle or red dot? And I said, well, I think it depends on the modality. So I was getting at. I think that in something like space or time, because we can do this with space and time too. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about it in cognition. I think you're going to see always a generalization gradient. I think 
Then uh, you know, Jacobs and Harrison says something about sound. I think with color, it's going to be a little bit different. So I think it, uh, my guess is it depends on, and this is frankly me saying, oh, I'm just going to sit on the fence. I don't really have an opinion. It's going to depend on the modality and the species being tested. Because I think if you have a species that is really that cares more than anything, depends a whole lot in its life on space, on spatial locations. Like a food storing bird, for example, I think that's going to be more important than anything else, no matter what the hell it has. Is. In fact, data like that, like crazy. I think generally animals will respond um, to stimuli based on space, but also I think generally animals will show these generalization. Um, here's another possibility. Maybe it's relational. Maybe instead of it being about this is yellow, this is green, maybe it's like this is brighter, this is not so bright, this is darker, this is lighter, whatever, this is louder, this is quiet, this is higher, this is lower. So maybe it's a relational thing. And Kerber tried this with um, chickens, which aren't as tasty as ducks. What he did, show back, sorry. What Curler did is he trained chickens up. He showed them um, different gradients. Uh, what do they call those things? Um, you know, the stripes, frequency gradients that they call them in perception? I take perception. You know, um, looks like the stimulus looks like this, and you've got a line there, one there. One there. You know this kind of thing? Then I'm talking with that perception anymore. It's for all the perception I know. So you can have ones that are hard to look at. More stripes, less stripes. And eventually, at some point, enough of those lines, it starts to morph into just being gray. Right? Right? So what Curly did is he trained up these little chickens. And the way the chickens responded wasn't like a generalization gradient. What he found was they learned that <clears throat> was it darker or more frequency, so in other words, more, more strikes per, per unit, per space. Um, they were basing it on what the last thing they saw it was. So it's relational. This is basically more stripes than that one, or less than that one. So they were doing it relationally. <coughs> now, to get more at this, uh, Gonzalez, Gentry, Bitterman, we've heard about Bitterman before, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this actually. Um, they had chimps uh, peaking among nine squares of various sizes. And when you pick one of the squares, um, well, here's how they actually work. So squares one, five, and nine, other way, I think one is, yeah, one's the, the smallest, nine's the biggest, okay? The animals reinforced here for picking number five, in other words, the middle. Okay. On a test trial, instead of doing an extinction, by the way, uh, the chimps were reinforced for anything. Maybe you don't want to make chimps angry. 
reinforced? They got reinforced every time, no matter on the test trial. So you can see what's going to happen. You're going to give different squares, and they always reinforce them. So I've given 4, 7, and 9 a relational theory, one that says they're doing this based on what's in the middle, right, related to the other ones. The subject should choose number 7. If it's an absolute thing, right, they should choose number 5 because it's closer to 4. So they're giving 1, 5, and 9 always as their choices. But if they're given 4, 7, and 9 as training, if they're trained out at 4, 7, and 9, uh, they should choose 7, and they're, they're, they're given 7. Absolute theory says they should choose 5, right? Subjects actually chose the intermediate size. So what happened in the experiment, no matter how they were trained up, they always chose the intermediate size. So what chips end up doing is they do it based on they, the rule they learned, and both rules would work, but the rule they learned was, I'll take the one in the middle, please. So they're learning a relationship between stimuli rather than S plus is always here, and it's this, and this wavelength, or in this case, this size. That's kind of cool. So that's a pretty, pretty good cognitive process here. We got like the animals are actually paying attention to which one's in the middle. So that's kind of an experiment. Now, here's something else that's weird. And I said I was going to show you S plus, and then what happens with an S minus. So we can call it S minus or S delta. Did you see that? So that says there. And what they've done here is the animal's trained up such that it gets food, and when we have the user S wavelength and in a, for color, I don't know what the colors are. So the animal's reinforced for this. And in the control condition, don't take a look yet at the dashed line. You get a lovely generalization gradient. In the, no, in the um, condition where we have an S delta, in other words, they're, told, they're shown this color, they get reinforcement, and this color, they get nothing. And then you do the generalization gradient, you actually get this. So again, when you're not giving them an S minus or S delta, as this here, even the same thing, you get a nice, pretty distribution. If you actually explicitly train them, the SD, so that's S plus, S delta, that's S minus. So they get shown this color, they get food, they get shown this color, they get no food, <coughs> and then they're tested with various colors along this axis, as you can see here. The whole distribution moves over to the left. What? It's called peak shift, because the peak shifted. It's a good name. I think those of us that do this kind of work figure this out hard enough as it is, so we get things really easy names. Peak shift. Blocking. Right? And that easy, completely intuitive folk psychology that Paul teaches? They got any fancy names, fundamental attribution error, you know, things like that. It's the only social psychology. 
That's neat. It's weird, too. We shift over that way. So I think it's kind of odd. Always have. You have an excitatory generalization gradient, just like this. That's for the S plus. And you have an inhibitory generalization gradient underneath, right? It's negative, inhibitory, for the S minus. So all you do is you add the, 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 the positive with the negative. <coughs> so here we are. Take a look. There's the S plus gradient. There's the S minus gradient. We can never see this behavior. Why? Because they can't peck less than not pecking. This is, remember the same sort of thing with habituation equals zero, that kind of thing, right? So what you do is you add these two up, the S plus and the S minus, and then look what happens. You're literally adding two curves. You actually get this curve, and it's peaked, the peak is shifted over. This also tells us what should happen if we have two S minuses on either side equidistant from the S plus and an S plus in the middle. What it should do is tighten up this distribution. That is exactly what happens. So what this is telling us then is that Spence was right. That it's actually a pretty simple thing. The animal has two gradients and it adds those two gradients up. I'm not saying that pigeons are sitting here going, well, let's see if I sub these two curves. But it describes the it describes the behavior pretty nicely. And added up as a song of the violent times. We were a great band from the nineties. You should all listen. And you recognize you go, oh, that's using that commercial. And the thing that's amazing is the idea that violent times songs were ever used in a commercial is so bizarre. Okay. 
No, you're right. Look, you're right. It's calmly out there. Um, the added to gradients doesn't predict that action, right? And well, I saw that, right? It actually predicts that it should be lower, something like that. Um, one could say that there's a total amount of behavior available to the animal, and because it's been moved over, it detects more at that peak, but that's what the only thing I got there. But that's only in this case. I don't know that it always looks like that, but to my recollection, the data often do look like that. Yeah, so I don't think it actually predicts that. It predicts the shift. It doesn't predict the change in the height of the peak. Good question. I don't know the answer. Yeah, because it should. Let me take a look here. You could make a, you could make a case uh, about how tight the S minus distribution was and how low it's gone. Okay? That, however, is obviously just something you would have to do your, your curve fitting after the fact. You're not making a prediction. But if you, the way to test that would be to detect the ship to give the animal so many S minus trials that you would get a really tight distribution here. Right? Or you can even do explicit training, but a tight distribution here and make it really low and see if we so it's more learning, right? And then see if the, the peak goes up or not. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a good question. It's really good question. Other questions? Okay. So when you look at this, it makes you start to think. You got to give like red and the, the red background of white triangle. What if <clears throat> animals learn concepts the same way humans learn concepts. So these concept learning people, like you guys know that, you know the stuff about, uh, for example, is a fish, oh, is a salmon a fish or is a dolphin a fish? People never get it wrong. Or is it, sorry, dolphin a mammal? Better. Uh, or is a cat a mammal? People never get that wrong, but it takes them a little longer to respond to that a dolphin's a mammal, even though everybody knows a dolphin's a mammal. Or is a penguin a bird? Compared to is a robin a bird? And it takes people a little less time to say yes to is a robin a bird than it takes say is a penguin a bird. We all know penguins are birds, right? But it takes us a little bit longer. And the notion is that we have a concept of birdness or fishness or, 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 or uh, mammalness. Right? And when things don't match, when they don't completely match up, it takes a little longer. Right? You probably remember that from intro site. If you've taken cognition, which I think is on next term, so it took a couple years ago, Lori. You've heard about this stuff? Well, that sounds a lot like, you know, when you think about it, this whole generalization thing, right? It's like a generalization gradient. It's far enough away that I don't think it's the same stimulus anymore. So this was actually, people started doing this. And the first person to do this was Hernstein. And Hernstein was a Skinner student. And what Hernstein did is he showed pigeons pictures of trees. And, and I think it's trees and fish. Okay? And half the birds are trained to peck at pictures of trees. The other half of the birds are trained to peck at pictures of fish. 
And then what you do is you test them. And you can't test them with always just the same fish or the same birds. You use novel stimuli, right? Because maybe they've memorized every single S plus and every single S minus. And in fact, when you test them with novel stimuli, they actually can generalize them. They show that they, they respond, they peck at the fish or the, or, or the picture, trees, depending on the, what you have the animals which trained out. So that was God, early, late 60s, early 70s. So that's kind of cool, showing it. it's not unlike our idea of birdness or mammalness. They learn like a concept. So the question you can ask then is, do they need to be natural concepts? Right? Does that have to be something the animal would experience in nature? Does it? Well, you would think so, and you'd be wrong. You can actually use completely made-up concepts. What's a made-up concept? Well, you got a whole bunch of stimuli, and let's go... That's just four stimuli there, so we got a triangle, a square, a pentagon, and a hexagon. And we're going to give them S plus, S plus, S minus. Uh, actually, that's not very good. Let's make that the S minus. This isn't a very good example. <laughs> S plus, S plus. Now, we now train the animal, we now give the animal the following as a test. If it pecks at that, it's learned the concept. The concept is there's a shape with more than four sides. You could even do this, and that's just that one modality, right? Number of sides. You could do number of sides and color. So it's got to be a shape with more than four sides, and it's got, and it's green. We do that with human concept learning. We're using artificial concept with people. So the same kind of stimuli we use in pigeons, and they can do that too. So you can teach them concepts. No problem. That's kind of neat, actually. So they're showing a, a level of cognition here that I think is a little to someone like to be a Skinner or John Watson or Thorndike can be pretty damn surprising, right? Now, how long does these, these things last? Um, well, the stuff with... Let's look at what Juan Delius is a pretty cool guy. Um, Juan did this great experiment where he had animals and trained them up with the Turnstein natural concepts. So he used trees. I think it was trees and non-trees. So they trained up to respond to trees, okay? He then put the animals away in their home cages, as you do... No, nope, they weren't in any experiment, and they were in that I, six months. Brings them out, shows them a novel stimulus, a tree they peck at. Six months later. Um, he got as far as a year. I think it was 13 months he ended up getting as far, that far. And they were still way better than chance. So you remember the concept about trees. I remember I'm supposed to peck at trees, I get food. 
That's pretty nifty. I did. Here's one of my real favorites, Honig the Stewart. Bernd uh, Honig was a, an amazing guy. The uh, Halsey, another Canadian connection. Um, I remember him talking about this experiment. I was at a conference. Uh, well, not this experiment, one like this. But I remember him talking about something very much like this. In 1989, I was at a conference called, wait for the title of this conference, The Cognitive Aspects of Stimulus Control. It was actually really an awesome conference. But, Originally, the name was the Conference on Complex and Extended Stimuli, which was worse, so they changed it. Now, Housing used to have, like, every four years, almost like the Olympics, they would have this sort of, like, um, conference on animal cognition. And Bert Honig uh, was one of the driving forces here. And Honig's pretty amazing, uh, was, it's dead now, but because he would never remember anybody's name, uh, he was socially inappropriate a lot of times. <laughs> Not badly, like not in a bad, offensive way. He just didn't know what to do. Uh, he had a boat that he sailed on a lot, and no one would ever be like, whenever he'd go to, to Halifax, he'd say, you want to come out with my boat? And everybody would go, no, I don't. Because no one trusted him. Because <laughs> it's like, he always seemed like he was, he's the ultimate absent-minded professor. He was like, exactly like the archetype of that. Really super nice guy. Well, he always remembered my name, which was really weird. Like, oh, I actually know you. You're a first year master's student. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why he always remembers my name. It's very strange. So this is a cool experiment. And he was, when he was running this conference, people were talking about all this idea of concept learning. Talk about concept learning. And then everybody would argue about do animals see photographs, because people using photographs, as representations of the real world? Well, that's a good question. Maybe they just see it as blotches. And most of us in the room, well, I wouldn't say that, I think people that were, well, you know, the smart people in the room, everybody was smart, but we all thought, yeah, sure, they think they see, they see pictures as a representation of the real world just like we do. Other people said, no, they see blotches of color, they have no idea, it's the same thing. So he comes up and it's, it's his show, and he says, here, I'll show you what I did. He puts a, takes an overhead, and a lot of people use overheads back then, and he just draws on it, showing, and he's drawing up this experiment. What they did is they showed pigeons. This is her honors thesis, by the way. It's a very cool experiment. Shows, they showed the pigeons pictures of one side of a hallway or another side of a hallway in the lab. The pigeons then are reinforced for pecking on, let's say, over this part of the hallway and not reinforced for pecking at pictures of this part of the hallway. That has all kinds of different angles. Now you know what you do? to test if they've learned this, and if they see this representation of the real world, let the pigeons loose, see where they go. And if they've been reinforced with pecking this side, guess where they go? They all go over here, they're looking at you. <laughs> Waiting to get food, trying to look, is there a pecking key somewhere? They don't go over here where they weren't reinforced. That's really freaking clever. People still argue about this stuff. They still see those, those pictures of the representation of the real world. I think this kind of answers the question. This has been also uh, played with a little bit. Um, same kind of idea uh, by Marcia Spech and Ken Cheng. 
Marcy is at University of Alberta, uh, Ken's at Macquarie University in Melbourne, Australia. Um, he was at University of Toronto for a long time, and he was also at Western. Uh, so Ken, he was a postdoc when I was an undergrad, and he was a prophet of team when I was a grad student. So I've known Ken a long time as well, and I've known Marcy a long time. Very, both, again, Canadian. Ken had to move to Australia for some reason. We don't know. Both Canadian, very good at this. What they did, this is this little this one blows my mind. This is one that I thought this is crazy, there's no way this will work. They train pigeons on a touch screen. Now touch screens, you know, now we all have them in our pocket. They used to be really expensive, I'm just saying. They used to be thousands and thousands of dollars, now they're just, you know, they come with a they're a dollar $197 for the three-year contract. A little different. Pigeon sees a touch screen, and the animal uh, pecks at it, and the computer can tell the animal pecked, of course. So they show pictures to these pigeons, photographs, of outside the University of Alberta. Outside the psychology building or whatever else it's called. And there's a bench here, and a garbage can here. And the animals eventually learn, they start pecking the screen. They'll do that. It's in the dark. It's the only thing available. They're like, oh, I might as well peck this. I am a pigeon after all. So it's like right here. Okay? They start pecking. They get food. They eventually peck, peck, peck. They get to the right place, a little zone, they get food. Then you know what you do? You take them outside. <laughs> this is really neat. By the way, the pigeons at this point, you take them outside, but they have their wings clipped so they can't fly away. You don't want your birds fly away. Okay, so they go, oh my god, my animals are gone. <laughs> All this work, they just flew away. They took them outside, guess where they started pecking on the ground? Right there. That's really neat. Like, if you don't think that's cool, you don't, I'm not quite sure you know what cool means. But don't you think that's neat? Pretty cool. So they're even seeing, and again, this is one of the questions, well, you know, the flicker fusion ray of a pigeon, they may not even be seeing this as images on the touch screen. They no, they do. We can even train them in a certain place that that's what they should pet. Pretty cool. Questions about that? So this kind of work, the stuff about stimulus control, the stuff about discrimination and generalization really led to the field of comparative cognition, which really starts out the first time you hear the term animal cognition used, big time, is in 1974, and it's at a conference at Dalhousie organized by Fern Honig. And the book comes out of this conference, like they always did, it was one in 74, one in 77, one in 84, one in 88. They sort of run them like they used to run the, the World Cup of Hockey. It's like whatever they feel like it. It's not really a school. And Suddenly we're talking about animal cognition here. We're not talking about on an FI schedule, you get whatever, right? So now we're talking, we're talking about the actual the animals represent the world in their minds. That animals think that they aren't just mindless automatons responding to a three-term contingency. And 
For the rest of the course, that's actually what we're going to talk about, is we finally have got to the cool stuff, which is animal cognition compared to cognition. One of the things I want, if you have, you don't have to have bought the book, but if you've read, if you bought the Shuttleworth book, the optional book, Fundamentals of Comparative Cognition, after you've studied for the test that's coming up on, now it's going to be time to read that book. Uh, no assigned chapters per se, I just read it. It's a really easy read. Sarah's an amazing writer. Um, if you find this stuff interesting at all, uh, do pick that book up because it really is a cool little book. It's not very expensive either. Right? I don't get any kickbacks from Sarah for her royalties. Just letting you know that. All right, so this is, we'll start talking about that next time as compared to publication. Any questions? Okay. Is there any questions generally? You know, like, because it's a test coming up there? If you could measure our relationship by TV, it was two episodes long. Like some kind of sitcom, now yeah. And I can hear the laugh track. Cause you said you will love me and I believe you Guess that makes me the ass Well ha ha, then you woke up And you thought, what's her name? And is that the same girl or has her character changed? And I said, is it unlighting? Cause I swear, I've never seen you before But then again, they all look the same as they run out the door And then we cut to a flashback scene with me on North Conversation pouring out the pouring Let's get out of place So you wink and I smile Try not to fall down the stairs When can we edit that out And add a casual clip of my hair No commercial breaks. Things are flying by and baby, it's getting late. Or is it getting early? Where the fuck are my pants? I better hurry this up, cause I've seen your song and dance. Yeah, don't. Yeah, who knows how the middle of this story This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. 
Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.